What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Where are we going? Dunkirk. I'm not going back. There's no hiding from this sun. We have a job to do. And so we do, Josh. Back to Dunkirk to finish the job. Indeed, it's my third trip back to Dunkirk, Adam, and I would happily take a fourth. This week, we conclude our Christopher Nolan retrospective with the director's Best Picture nominee from 2017. And because a series like this isn't truly over until we hand out some awards, we've got, are we calling them the Polaroids, Adam? Is that where we're at right now? (laughs) On-air production meeting. We'll have it later as we share our Nolan Oeuvre Review Awards and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We will get to our Nolan Oeuvre Review Awards later in the show. We might have a name for those awards picked out by then. We might not. We will share our awards for favorite supporting performance and lead performance from this retrospective of the work of Christopher Nolan. We'll also share our picks for best Nolan moment and the overall best moment or scene after we have revisited all 10 of Nolan's films. And that will culminate with our Christopher Nolan rankings, the definitive Christopher Nolan ranking for each of us, one to 10. Will there be some shifting, Adam? G- give me a tease. Do you have oh, any yeah. shifts? Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. From the last time I posted a Nolan ranking on Letterboxd, there's been some movement. Yep, me too. One I think you'll like. I don't know if you'll like it enough, but <laughs> you will like it. First, though, the World War II movie from Christopher Nolan that we didn't know we needed, Dunkirk. The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. Your position, Josh, coming into this rewatch was that Dunkirk is Christopher Nolan's best film. And there's at least one longtime listener and regular commenter who agrees with you that we are culminating this overview triumphantly with the filmmaker's greatest achievement. Adam Grossman in Vancouver says, like many of us, I've completed my Christopher Nolan overview. Biggest takeaway, oeuvre is a really hard word to spell. We've learned <laughs> that as well. Second takeaway, I've decided Dunkirk is Nolan's career high point. While my heart loves Interstellar the most, good on you, Adam, and I hugely admire Inception and The Dark Knight for what they meant to action cinema and superhero movies respectively, Dunkirk is his masterpiece, gauntlet laid down for you, Tenet. I just don't know how anyone could argue that The Legend of Dunkirk could be told any better. The setup in the first eight minutes alone, from the falling paper from the sky to the distressed cry of Where's the Bloody Air Force, is a wonder of a short film in itself. The lack of dialogue works perfectly for what this movie wants to achieve, with Hans Zimmer's relentless score doing all the audio work that's necessary. Among all the chaos, there are frequent moments of grace. Kenneth Branagh's face as Commander Bolton as the cavalry arrives in the form of the civilian vessels. The empathy as Peter tells Killian Murphy's PTSD soldier, the young George will be okay. And no moment more than the shot be okay, and no moment more than the shot of Tom Hardy's plane silently gliding over the beaches of Dunkirk, knowing his job has been done. 
Dunkirk is also uniquely a Christopher Nolan movie, one where his signature use of time has never melded together better and more cohesively than it does in the final 20 minutes of this film. While Dunkirk will, understandably, never be a wholly enjoyable or easy rewatch, it's one that gets richer and richer with repeat viewing. Now, Adam mentioned Nolan's signature use of time, and that is one aspect of Dunkirk, among others, that certainly connects to his entire body of work. But there are other aspects that mark Dunkirk as unique. It is his only film that is based on historical events, which means it is inherently rooted in the past, and yet I'd argue it is his only film that truly feels present tense, meaning there are no dead parents or wives or forsaken children or other tragic events haunting the heirs, Farrier, played by Tom Hardy, the Moles, Army Private Tommy, Fian Whitehead, or, for the most part, the C's Mr. Dawson, played by Mark Rylance. Like all Nolan protagonists, there's plenty of personal sacrifices on display, but no guilt, no sense of futility about atoning for past actions, just the seemingly futile need to survive the current event that they are tragically experiencing. Here's something else I'd argue is unique about Dunkirk. As we and every other commentator on Nolan's work has discussed in some form or fashion, for all those dead parents and wives and forsaken children, there's nothing so emotional or borderline sentimental in any of his previous films as the climax of Inception, and yes, mileage may vary there, which led to Interstellar and not only McConaughey's crushing breakdown watching 23 years worth of missed video messages from his family, but the verbalized message, love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that, even if we can't understand it. It's hard to imagine any character in previous Christopher Nolan movies saying something like that, which led to Dunkirk. Am I crazy, Josh, that this is his most blatantly sentimental and even heartwarming film? And if so, is that what establishes Dunkirk as his best? Its balance of coldness, the sober portrayal of the hell of war, of life, and the misguided choices some men will make when facing death— with warmth and the compassionate, inspiring choices some men will make to maintain a way of life. So a lot of subtleties in that question, um, and you're onto something, so you're not crazy. I, I think I would distinguish the word blatantly. I don't think this is his most blatantly emotional or moving, but I do think you're onto something in the fact that it is maybe his most heartwarming in where it ends up. Um, and let me kind of try to parse those. Uh, you're right. As long as the Nolan canon has a convulsing McConaughey in it, Interstellar is going to be his most blatantly emotional. I mean, you can't have a scene like that without um, registering that on its surface. That's his most emotional movie. But I will also say that I find Dunkirk to be his most emotionally affecting movie, maybe even more so than Inception, which we talked about how I did find that very moving, especially in the character of Mal. So, um, yeah, Dunkirk is really a unique thing, even as it's working within the strands and trends that we have been tracing in Nolan's other films. I think the heartwarming aspect is probably a part of that. You, you've nailed it there in that it brings us to a place that uh, is one of consolation. And I I think it's earned because I think up until that point, um, we have just been suffering alongside all of these other characters in so many ways. And we've also been recognizing, as the movie does, that this is 
a, you know, a, an account of a military failure, a huge defeat. Um, and so for the movie to kind of offer some sort of solace at the end of that, I think is um, in proportion and well earned. So, yeah. I think that's a distinction. Uh, now, the question for me is, why Why do I find it so affecting? Why do I find this movie so um, intensely moving, even though a lot of that stuff isn't on the surface? And I, I think, um, for me, it came down to one thing that popped out to me as I was watching it this time is it's a personal film, not in that we get to know even one or two of these characters intimately in the ways we know about, you know, the past, as you said, tragic events of other Nolan characters. Mm -hmm. What we get to know them by are their individual decisions. They're small choices that are made, allowing them to exercise some sense of agency amidst this madness. And, and that makes them feel so real and allows us to connect with them um, so strongly, even though we don't know a lot of their backstory. So even the choice early on of Tommy and Gibson, um, the, the French soldier played by Anurin Bernard, to pick up the stretcher. That choice, mm -hmm. you know, uh, tells us so much about them. Uh, the choice of George Barry Kagan to jump on board Mr. Dawson's boat. How crucial is that to knowing the essence of his character and who he is as this teenager. Um, how about a choice? We don't get to see how it's made, but a choice that is presented when Bronagh is told at one point, one stretcher takes the place of seven standing men. That's kind of left in the air. I don't think we ever see, if I'm remembering correctly, if he makes the decision of, okay, no longer are the wounded going on the boats mm -hmm. instead we're, but, but that sort of is, we know that's out there for him to make one individual choice. Um, and so those all kind of build up for me and really do make this a movie though. It's an ensemble piece. There's no lead character, no main character. I still feel attached to all of them mm -hmm. in these varying ways. And, and maybe that is why. When that scene that Adam mentioned of Tom Hardy's plane gliding over the beach just kind of, you know, breaks me down in a way that people describe breaking down while watching Interstellar, which, as I said, is a movie I do find moving um, or Inception, which I do find moving as well. Nothing is kind of like as shaking to me as that scene for Hardy. Maybe it's a cathartic thing. Maybe it's, and we'll get to this, I hope, the fact that I find it a moment of filmmaking, pure craft triumph, triumph, mm -hmm. and I'm kind of moved by the craft, if you can be so moved by craft rather than narrative. Um, I think that's what it is for me a little bit too. But but yeah, um, Dunkirk for me does stand apart um, as an emotional experience, even though I would not describe it as his most blatantly emotional movie. Yeah, and I thought a little bit about how I should phrase that or what adjectives I should apply, and I think the reality is we could get very lost in the syntax here. But what occurred to me watching it in those last 10 minutes or so, even as some people are feeling, I'm thinking of the Harry Styles character who is experiencing great shame, and Kenneth Branagh's character is making another one of those individual choices to stay yeah, yeah. behind, right? There's all this going on, and you're hearing... Fee and Whitehead read Churchill's remarks that start out seeming very cold and very kind of dispassionate and talking about the failure of the mission. But then that transitions into something that is actually quite inspiring to go back to that word. And so when you have the, the triumph, if you will, as subtle as it is of George being commemorated for mm. his bravery in the newspaper and simply this realization of home, even if the man who spoke those words a couple of times, Kenneth Branagh, doesn't actually get to 
go home, at least at the end of this movie, the fact that we do see those boats show up and the feeling we get to me, Josh, yes, it's a different type of emotion than the longing for home and for his daughter that McConaughey's character has, of course, in Interstellar. But it is similarly, I guess I would say, atypical for Nolan based on that previous body of work. There is something about it that does not feel false to me at all, but was surprising to me in terms of how it actually did genuinely make me feel. And I think what you were expressing about the choices characters get to make and why that hits you so hard. That's what I was getting at with the idea of this film feeling like his only one that's truly present tense. And Mm. that is, I think, the wonder of this film and why it is definitely one of his best films is that you could go back and look at a lot of the choices that characters make in his movies, whether it's the magicians in The Prestige or whether it's Bruce Wayne in The Dark Knight. And yes, they're wrestling with a lot of huge moral dilemmas and personal ethical choices and these larger scientific issues, even in some cases, or just wrestling with that idea of what kind of person am I going to be in this world? And yet, I think you could make the case that a lot of what they do because of their drivenness and how obsessed they are and because of the losses in their past, they feel preordained. The decisions feel like they have been made for them and they're just accepting their fate. And that's exactly the opposite of every single moment in Dunkirk. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And I was thinking about this obsession thread because we have spent some time on it and comparing that to Dunkirk and just trying to see where might that show up here. And I suppose you could say that some characters express a little bit of obsession in one way or another. Maybe it's in Branagh not leaving, you know, he just, yeah. <laughs> he, he's going to... Not turning around. Hardy Rylance, not turning not around. Turning around. Right? Yes. Yeah. I think yeah. maybe there's some threads there, but but we it's not definitely not as strong as we see no. it in one embodied in one single character. Um, I do think for me, you know, just a lot of what I love about uh, Dunkirk is just the formal elements of this. And one that I don't think we talked about a lot uh, in our original review is what I guess you could call epic choreography. And and I'm Hmm. I'm saying epic just because it's such a grand scale. Or maybe you would just say epic blocking. When you talk about blocking a scene Mm -hmm. of like two or three characters, here you have early on the men in lines on the beach, the first shots we get of the beach where they're trying to evacuate. They're very orderly awaiting um, the ships. And then that's one form of choreography, right? But then the sudden scattering when the air attack arrives, which is also you realize as a filmmaker, that is choreography too, right? It's it's meant to look chaotic, but it's really Nolan's formation they're mm-hmm. following along this beach. In that same sequence, the line of bombs dropping along the sand towards Tommy's helmet, where which is right up against us in the foreground of the screen, and just seeing that choreographed or another moment with a, a bunch of men when they're on the pier waiting to be picked up. And the image is just this sea of helmets, right? We see no faces. Mm -hmm. We see all of these helmets. And then the choice, the choreography choice to have the one face turn at the sound of another approaching plane. And you get this white scared face look just like two seconds before the other helmets turn. And there is just so much of that going on in, in this film that is just jaw-dropping in its scale of choreography, Mm -hmm. but also speaking to, you know, capturing character in certain instances, that one soldier suddenly becomes a character because we see his face first and we lock in on his face. And there's so many examples of that um, going on throughout Dunkirk. 
Yeah, this was the movie. I think I mentioned this on a previous show. I was least looking forward to watching again. And that's because obviously it's the movie of his I had seen the most recently back in 2017 and loved it. It was in my top 10, if not my top five. And also I knew Adam Grossman kind of hinted at this. It's not an easy watch, right? Like there's there's a lot of near-death experiences. The whole yeah. movie is one big near-death experience. There's also a lot of death experiences, people drowning or a almost coming close drowning. to drowning. Yes. Yeah, people stuck in holes of ships. I mean, as a claustrophobic, very claustrophobic man myself, I'm with that French soldier who said, no thanks, I don't need to go down there. I don't care what the tea tastes like. The Brits yeah. can keep it. I don't yep. care what the, the jam and bread tastes like. I'm going to just stand out here and shiver because at least I can get out. So I could I could totally relate to that. But man, is this truly a great film? And part of it is what you are saying and what you said so well, just the look of it. And Hoyte van Hoytema here coming off Interstellar. I mean, wow. for Nolan, the most shots per minute of runtime, I think, that just take your breath away. Yes. And you you gave a lot of examples, but I would agree with you completely that it isn't just about the scale in the sense that you can sometimes watch a scene that involves a lot of people, a lot of soldiers, and a lot of movement, and a lot of chaos, and feel like, wow, how did the director pull that off? Mm-hmm. How did they shoot that on that day? What what a vision. What what a wrangling act. But that's that's not what this is. There is there is a precision to it and it's never just about showcasing the numbers and the size of it for the sake of showcasing the size of it. It is about the formations. It is about the relationship of these people to each other in this space. And it even goes back to the beginning of this film. That first shot. Adam touched on this as well. The first thing I jotted down in my notes was that sense just like Inception of being thrown into almost a dream. You're you're following these men behind them. It's it's very eerie, it's a little quiet, and these pamphlets, these pieces of paper that you don't know what they say are just falling from the sky. There's something about it that that as grounded as it is in reality, and that's what we always get from Nolan, there's there's something that does truly feel dreamlike and feels totally unnatural and it throws you into the exact headspace you need to be in for this film. And you mentioned the Hardy shot and it may or may not, or other moments involving Tom Hardy might come up in our awards. But that, for me, is a case, too, not just where it's it's obviously gorgeous, but it's where the different perspectives and the Rashomon-esque approach to time, the nonlinear structure, really, really pays off. Not that it's not effective, or not that I don't like it in the sense that it's fun to watch these Christopher Nolan films and see all the different fascinating ways he comes up with to play with time. And here it's so baked into the structure. It's told to us at the beginning that we're, we're one week out, we're one day out, we're one hour out. And that's the three different perspectives we're getting. We're getting a different time perspective and we're getting a different space perspective. And as we have touched on so many times, and I've tried to articulate and probably spent too many paragraphs trying to say it, I did come up with finally the one sentence, I think, that hopefully gets at what has really been astounding to me watching these films and trying to understand Nolan's work and the way that the language of cinema, if you will, is built into everything he does is that cinema is the manipulation of time and space, right? Fundamentally, Mm -hmm. that is what cinema is. And it's so crucial to everything that Nolan is trying to do. And when I mentioned the Rashomon effect, it's not as if when we see different moments play out from then a different perspective or see it multiple times that it necessarily changes our perception of the truth in those events, though one in particular that stands out is Collins when he crashes into the water. When you see it from one perspective, 
you think, well, that's almost graceful and beautiful and he might be okay. And then you see it again from his perspective and you realize how terrifying yeah. it is, right? So so that's one where it really does pay off. But for me, that that hardy plain moment is one that's not just gorgeous, but it's the fact that we now are seeing it from the vantage point of all the different players. Like the yes. whole film has been building up to that culmination where we get to watch his amazing act of heroism, the choice he makes to sacrifice himself without really ever watching him make that choice. It's just a choice that. he makes, right? He never just announces he it. Yep. No, he's he is always in motion. Hardy's character here is always just in motion by nature of being in an airplane, is always in motion the way this entire film is, right? Yeah. So he's not maybe the main character, but in some ways he feels maybe most central to me. And the film does seem to climax with all those different people from their vantage point, seeing what he did, including... Brana and experiencing it through them after we've already experienced it from Hardy's point of view. That's, I think, where where that emotion really kicks in. Yeah. And I love the efficiency, as you said, that he doesn't announce his intention to keep going despite being out of fuel. We don't even get the radio call, the, the like, pull back, you won't make it. You know, mm-hmm. early on, there's something like that that plants the seed is watch your fuel level. So we know to keep that in the back of our heads. But you would almost miss it if you weren't paying close attention when he makes that crucial choice that he's going to turn back anyway. They don't inflate it really in the filmmaking at all. And what you're talking about, Adam, in terms of that scene, uh, it's it's not a trick that Nolan is pulling that all of these things are happening at the, at the same time or from different vantage points. And when we realize it, we're like, oh, cool. What it does is it creates a communal experience as it it was for all of these men, whether they were on a boat, on the shore, in the air. The point of all this is that this was a huge moment in history, in time. And let's see if we can look at it from all of these different angles, not just to show how crafty we are, but to show how it was experienced by these exact individuals who are, again, making different choices in each situation, yet it was all part of the same massive experience. And that's mm-hmm. that's the achievement of it. And I'll probably save a little bit of this, spoiler, when we get to awards and talk about best film. Um, so I don't want to go into it too much, but I do want to say one more thing about the the time structure, because it's, it's something that occurred to me this time watching it. Again, a third, and maybe I relate relaxed a little bit. No longer do I have to figure out what's going on. I could just sit back and let it sort of wash over me. Mm-hmm. And I realized there was a larger trajectory to what Nolan was doing here, where he's collapsing these three time frames into one linear experience, right? By going mm-hmm. back and forth among them. But also it's the pacing of those scenes. It's intensely, this linear experience is intensely contracting um, as we get to the point where they all converge. So it just ratchets up in um, in speed, in intensity, in stakes, in mm-hmm. what's happening. Um, and then that convergence point, for me, I think it could be Hardy in the plane, but the sort of wow moment is when Tommy gets pulled up from the water of Mr. Dawson's boat. They're, they're holding on to him. Yeah. And you realize... It's Tommy. Like you, you're like yeah. I, that yeah. face that has been dragging in the water for like 30 seconds. Right. You know, in another movie, because of its construction, would probably just 
have to be a stranger, right? It would just be someone else who is saved and you're relieved. Yes. But when we realize it's a familiar face, that is the point of convergence for me where everything comes together and I just, your breath, like you just let out your breath, like, wow. Because you understand the journey that all of these characters have been in. Then from yeah. that point, the trajectory, the film almost opens up. It's like it's like that releases some energy, some tension, and I think I would include Hardy's flight as sort of the release, even though it is kind of bringing us back into that earlier time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just kind of the movie breathes at that point. Once we've converged, the time frames have all converged, then it sort of lets out this breath of relief, and it, it was really it was like I was holding my breath to that moment, watching the movie again, and then got to finally exhale after we hit that point. Yeah, and not to spell out the convergence too much here, but you're absolutely right. That is the the payoff. That is the emotional payoff and in terms of, I think, our admiration of the craft because it's those three storylines truly converging. We've yes. got the sea, we've got the mole when Tommy comes aboard, and Collins from the air is also on board that ship. Plus, from that vantage point, we do get to witness Tom Hardy's Farrier's act of heroism as well. So truly, there is that convergence there. And I think that gets at another point that, stands out to me with Dunkirk, which is for all the talk of how beautiful it is and the epic scale of it, it's the personal moments that truly do make this movie. And I'll just mention two, one that I didn't remember at all from last time, which is that we almost end this movie. And in fact, I was sure, I think most viewers were probably sure that we were going to end the movie on this gorgeous shot, that gorgeous shot that we'd already glimpsed earlier, that image of just the plane on fire, right? right at yeah. dusk. And it's it's so gorgeous in and of itself. And it feels like, well, yeah, okay, that's a metaphor I can wrap my head around. What a great way, Christopher <laughs> Nolan, to end the film. But then there's this little swell of music and it goes quiet and it goes black for a second and it comes up on what? On Tommy, on the train. Yeah. And just this little moment, almost a moment of him just kind of catching his breath as if, as if this whole experience is finally in some way all converged in his mind and you realize that Nolan felt it was important to say, I don't need to end this movie on a metaphor. It's always been about these people and it's been about mm. these faces. And I'm mm-hmm. going to give that ending, I'm going to give that final moment to this character who is also the character we opened the movie with. So I love, yes. I love that bookend. And even a moment, too, that I completely missed the first time I saw it is when... An officer character earlier, I don't think it's Branagh, but another character mentions that the engineers are trying to build like a new mole. They're trying oh, to build like I a know. new gangway. I know, you know where, where I'm you're going, going right? Yes. They're trying to build a new gangway out of the the abandoned vehicles. Mm-hmm. And they think that with the tide coming in, they can they can have these trucks there. And that's how people, that's how the soldiers can get on the boat. And the fact that Nolan gives a moment to us seeing that be successful and then cut back to the engineer, the guy we've only seen on screen for maybe five seconds, right? But in that moment, you know he's the engineer and you know he's smiling because as so many other characters in this movie and in Nolan's films, he did his job. He (laughs) performed his one task and he did it well. It succeeded. Yeah. And it, that his choice came through. Like he wasn't just yes. going to sit there and, and wait to be rescued. He devised this plan to create this makeshift pier and it worked. And you're right. I love giving the time in a very lean film, giving us a few seconds to return and see that guy's face. And you're also right about ending um, back, you know, not on the beach, but ending with Tommy and returning to his story and his face. Uh, I think that also what I like about it is it deflates 
the note of triumph that the movie does also end Mm -hmm. with because I, I think it's okay. And it actually struck me as the right note the most this time in my, than in my previous viewings before I thought it was maybe, you know, again, the movie had done such a good job of no dialogue, no explaining. And then to end with a speech kind of seemed to undercut that with, with, you know, the Churchill speech. But I do think ending back on Tommy and showing the conflict that you talked about, you know, he's, he's exhausted, relieved to have survived, but also wondering, um, you know, with Alex, the Harry Styles character, they have this conversation, you know, people are going to, people are going to look down on us and hate us because we failed. And you see that all roiling in his face and it kind of undercut cuts the triumphant element, which, which I'm okay with, but I didn't want to yeah. be too heavy there. No. And I think that particular moment and that idea there at the end also gets at something fundamental to Nolan. So I've talked about some ways maybe Dunkirk is unique in his body of work. There are lots of ways, as I said earlier, that it completely fits in. And one of those is, and I touched on this, I did look at my previous notes from our review and we saw this if my notes are accurate we saw this in 70 millimeter IMAX Navy Pier it was it was a critic screening and you said maybe there were some formal things we didn't touch on that was one of those cases I'm positive where we came right from the theater literally right from the theater at Navy Pier and went and recorded a review so didn't really have a lot of time to fully process that movie but I did in my notes comment on the fact that there is time devoted to what people see or don't see blindness coming up multiple times Mm -hmm. in the film, including that character at the end where Harry Styles misunderstands and misinterprets the fact that he doesn't look up at him. The old man thinks that means that he's ashamed of them. And now Harry Styles is going to carry that guilt. That's where the guilt finally comes in, right? Is what Mm -hmm. are they going to carry away from this experience? And of course, with George losing his sight and with Killian Murphy's character, the soldier who I think is actually called in the credits, shivering soldier that's his name right him turning his back that great moment of him looking when the stretcher is carried off but then when the camera flashes we see that he's gone peter turns his head he doesn't see killing murphy killing murphy's character has turned his head and decided to move forward with his life and at the time i tried to tie that josh to just this kind of visceral nature of this film that it made sense that Nolan would focus on things like taste a little bit with the tea and the bread, and he would focus on things like what people do see or what people don't hear. But now, having watched it in the context of this Ooh review, I realize how well it fits in with all the themes we've talked about, including going back to really Memento, right? And yeah, that, I was Adam, just thinking that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Adam Grossman said it, the empathy as Peter tells Killian Murphy's soldier that young George will be okay. So for me, it's that line from Insomnia I mentioned that I think is so crucial to Nolan's work, which is, I guess it was what you thought was right at the time and what you can live with. Yeah. And I just feel like, Josh, that's the that's the perfect summation for every hard choice, as you touched on, and action these three main characters and so many other characters make in the movie. And that lie, that crucial Nolan lie and the the accepting of a personal deception and denial that's comes it. in. Yeah. Right. When when you recognize that what these characters are doing is telling themselves the lie they need to tell themselves in order to be happy. Right. That's that's what he turns his back on, the shivering soldier. And it's now about what he thought was right at the time and what he is capable of living with. And that also goes for Alex. It goes for Tommy. It goes for Peter. It goes for Peter in that moment where we watch him have to decide after defiantly telling him, no, he's not going to be okay. When he's asked again, he makes a different choice, doesn't Mm. he? He has compassion for him. And he says, it's better if this guy doesn't know. He makes a choice for him. 
that he needs to hear this lie in order to be happy. So it really does perfectly tie back to so much of what we've seen. Yeah, when you and when you said memento, I, I was going there for that self-deception element, which yep. the shivering soldier is definitely, I get the sense, making that choice. Um, what he is going to believe, at least on the surface, you know, deep down, he's going to carry that for the rest of his life. Um, and I, I think even Mr. Dawson, the Mark Rylands character, says something about that. Like he may never recover. Yes. Um, before any before the incident with George even happens. So Killian Murphy reminds me of just a couple connections, just quick things I wanted to bring bring up because they jumped out at me in the context of this rewatch. But how about the shivering soldier? What does he look like? He looks like he's just been scarecrowed, right? I yeah. Mean, yeah, he, yeah. Could, he could be a victim of scarecrow. And <laughs> then point. we were talking about um, Tom Hardy not announcing that, oh, I'm out of fuel, but I'm going to go anyway. One of the seeds that um, we get so that we know that is how he's writing the fuel and time in chalk on his dashboard, mm-hmm. right? The the Doing the math. The device, the measurement is broken, so he can't read that. So he has to keep track of it. And that jumped out at me. It's it's a version of Leonard tattooing crucial info on his body, right? This, this tactile information. Now here, in Hardy's case, um, it's true information, right? It's, yeah. It's, yeah. it's not self-deception at all. It's crucial. Um, but still, I like that sort of tactile element of putting information down in a concrete way. And there's a visual callback, I think, for sure. The shot of the soldiers' helmets littering the beach. This is mm-hmm. when things are really looking bad. Yeah. Um, and and you get a sense of these are these men are basically ghosts at this point. They've just thrown their helmets away, or maybe maybe they're even the helmets of men who have died. Um, it was to me, it just was, you know, a callback right to the shot from the prestige, the field of top hats. I know that's um, you where could you're probably going, yeah. Pair those right together. And I guarantee they have a similar they have a symmetry there visually. Yeah, I think the tattoo connection you make there with the gas gauge is probably the right one, but you could also maybe even argue argue as much as it does seem to be omnipresent in his mind the fact that that gauge is destroyed so it isn't in front of him it isn't a visual reminder it can't tell him to turn back it's then something that he can deceive himself about right and pretend pretend he's got the gas to keep doing whatever he's got to do because he doesn't have to confront that reality as as blatantly to go back to that word as a pilot would who's staring at that gas gauge just yeah. going down 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 right maybe it, so maybe it helped him maybe it enabled him to to make that ultimate choice yeah so i had a couple of quick hits here because looking back at my notes i had under issues with dunkirk the first time again a movie i loved i had these three things i had the zimmer score i said is appropriately eerie and i think adam even used this word it's certainly relentless actually that was in my notes too i called it eerie but relentless and I think I meant that as a negative then, Josh. Now, I love the Zimmer You're score. You're coming around? Oh, I'm, I'm so totally glad. Around. I'm no, so I, glad. I was into it from the beginning. It never waned for me. Yes, it gets more and more overpowering and in your face, but especially early on, just that kind of percussive heartbeat yes. drum thing that's happening. I think it's it's so subtle. You're you're really not aware of it unless you force yourself to pay attention to it, but I think it's adding so much. So I'm in on the Zimmer score here. I I'm did so glad say, to hear that. Let me let me good. just say oh, real quickly, because, yeah. um, and I think I did spend time on this because I've been a fan of it from the first time I saw it. What I think is crucial about the score is that it's inseparable from the sound design in the way that you're describing. Mm -hmm. So we can say that it's relentless and probably people think in their minds, oh, that means it's just wallpaper. And it's not at all because, you know, the the clicking of a stopwatch is sound design and that segues right into the percussion you're talking about. Or um, even the strings to me 
they're either melded with or they lead right into or come out of the thrum of a propeller underwater that you mm-hmm. get. And so everything is kind of intertwined to the sensory elements we're seeing on the screen. So I'm not, you know, a Zimmer acolyte who thinks it, everything he does always works. But I do think, especially as we're slipping among these three locations, um, you know, the mole, the land mm-hmm. and the sea and and the time frames too, the soundscape helps to create the seamless experience along with, we have to say, the editing by Lee Smith, who who did the editing on yeah. a lot of Nolan's films and is doing probably some of his best work here, um, just helping along with Nolan determine when to shift from one time frame to the other. Yeah. I did also point out that even though this is mostly a silent film, when people did speak, I barely understood them. And that has to do with the accents, too, in addition to the sound design and all the chaos. And it was fun for me to be able to turn my subtitles on and watch the movie <laughs> from home this time. I also said that, you know, Kenneth Branagh, who's an actor I love, I said that he basically gets asked here to stare into the sky or sea with great nobility. And that's about all he gets to do. And watching it again, I still think that's the case. And the movie certainly gives to him its, you know, emotional beat, which is that verbalization of home. Mm-hmm. And he does say it twice. I wish he had more to do. It's still fun to watch Kenneth Branagh. If I'm going to watch a stately British actor stare nobly, I'll take Kenneth Branagh. But I'll just end on this. That verbalization of home is another way I do feel like, and I know he's got more films to make. We'll see what happens with The Tenant. But it's another way this movie feels on a trajectory with his other films and feels like a culmination. I said it during Interstellar when we discussed that movie a couple weeks ago without at all looking ahead to Dunkirk or thinking about how big a part of the story this was, the the homeland, England, just almost in your sight, and you're just desperately trying to get there. It wasn't until Interstellar, with that plot revolving so much about a character trying to get home, obviously, that I saw the through line in all of his other films about the the space these characters inhabit, going back even to following, the the oddness of then when he gets to go into that space with a different set of eyes, pretending to be a different person, Bruce Wayne and, and Wayne Manor and it getting destroyed and rebuilt and, and inception, obviously trying to get back to his kids and his wife, even Leonard, right? He's haunted by this action that happened at his house and he's trying to reclaim his life, the life he had when he lived in that house with his wife. So home is something that didn't fully hit me as being an important theme or idea for Nolan fully until Interstellar, and then that's what Dunkirk is is all about. So the home line that Branagh has, and I think I'm remembering this correctly because it kind of jumped out at me. I, I agree. The first time around, he was almost, he stood out like a sore thumb a little bit just because of his stature and we know who he is. He's the familiar face, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that has bothered me less with each revisit. And I'm pretty sure I noticed this time, he does say the home line the first time and he does whisper it in that stately way, right? But the second time, I think it's the other officer, the army officer who comes up, looks across over the pier and is about to say it. And I'm pretty sure Branagh says, don't say it. And, and kind of like, there's two ways to go about that is he's kind of like putting this officer, like calming him down. Like, don't lose, don't lose your shit. Like we're, yeah, don't, yeah. don't get to, you know, realize how close we could be home. But the yeah. other thing is it undercuts the sentimentality of it because to have that line actually repeated twice would have been like, what is it? The Dylan Thomas poem in interstellar that's repeated like four times, oh, man. right? Don't get me started because I can tell you how wrong you are about that. <laughs> okay. Still. Well, we'll set that aside. But as a point of comparison, you could repeat a poem four times. Or 
you could have a line in a dialogue. You could repeat it four times to emphasize things. But here, I'm pretty sure the second time is kind of undercut. The moment, and, yeah. And I just mo- kind of like that. No, I do too. The moment I am recalling what he says is it's another character who says home is right there. And he says, just because it's close doesn't mean doesn't mean we're going to get there or something like that. So yeah. he doesn't maybe say the word home again the way another character does. But I think but he, he has stops that, somebody. I think he yeah. stops somebody. Yeah, maybe he does have that first really kind of sentimental moment he where he, he he wraps his mouth around the word yes. home. And that's that's fine. That That's what I'm there to watch Kenneth Branagh. Indeed. Do. So. Dunkirk, anything else, Josh, you want to throw in here or did we do it? I think I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Dunkirk is available to rent on most platforms, or maybe you can watch it on Blu-ray like I did. If you've seen the film recently and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Now that we're done with Nolan's films, you know we need to rank them. The Film Spotting Poll is up next with the listener's choice for their favorite. Plus, Adam and I will hand out our Nolan awards. Stay with us. I guess we're leaving town again. We're moving out and moving in. Gotta break the news to all my friends, but they won't care. They'll just find another face to fall behind and take my place. And run way up past second base and just stand. Dreamsicle on a summer night in a folding lawn chair. Witches ring around the moon, better get home soon. Poison oak and poison ivy, dirty jokes that blew right by me. Mama curling up beside me, crying to herself. Why can't daddy just come home? Forget whatever he did wrong. He's in a hotel all alone and we need help. A dream circle on a summer night in a folding lawn chair. I'm still packing up my room, gotta get home soon. from the trailer for She Dies Tomorrow, the new film from actor-director Amy Simons. In the movie, Caitlin Sheel is a woman who, as you heard there in the clip, is convinced that she is going to die tomorrow. The catch, Josh, her apparently irrational fear is contagious. So does that mean everyone else thinks they're going to die as well, or they just believe that she is going to die tomorrow? I guess we'll have to watch the movie. I'm going to guess the former, but I have no idea, have not read anything about the movie or watched that entire trailer. We will find out at some point, though, because that movie, also starring Jane Addams, Michelle Rodriguez, and Chris Messina, is a movie we do hope to discuss on an upcoming show. It actually opens this weekend, didn't fit into our schedule for this week. We are going to be off next week, but we're going to come back the week after that and maybe get to a little bit of a review roundup. And this is one I am really eager to see. Simons is the director of 2012 Sun 
Sun Don't Shine, and the co-creator of TV's The Girlfriend Experience based on the Steven Soderbergh film. So that's one we're putting on your radar because it's definitely on our radar for a couple weeks from now. Yeah, I think it's going to be She Dies Tomorrow. I think it's going to be at drive-in theaters this weekend exclusively. Then it will come to VOD the following weekend. So that's probably where we'll catch up with it. All right. The new film spotting poll has us looking ahead to the rest of the summer's offerings. The big theatrical releases, of course, have mostly been scrubbed from the calendar. The exception, Tenet, as you may have heard, will be opening overseas apparently now on August 26th. So what summer offerings could we possibly be talking about? Well, yes, things like Amy Simons' She Dies Tomorrow, movies that under normal circumstances may have had just a limited theatrical run, but are now coming directly to VOD. So we're giving you these options, all movies we're curious about, even if we don't think we'll probably manage to get to them all. We want you to help direct us a little bit. Where does your excitement lie for some of these films? Josh, I'll take the first few here and then you can jump in. Boy State, this is a documentary from directors Jesse Moss and Amanda McBain. It follows a thousand 17-year-old boys who come to Austin to form a representative government from the ground up. That hits Apple Plus on August 14th. And I Used to Go Here, directed by Chicago's own Chris Ray, stars Gillian Jacobs as a writer who's invited to speak at her alma mater by a professor played by Jermaine Clement. That hits VOD August 7th. Another option is is Project Power, maybe a little bit bigger of a project here. It stars Jamie Foxx and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Here's the plot synopsis. An ex-soldier, a teen, and a cop collide in New Orleans as they hunt for the source behind a dangerous new pill that grants users temporary superpowers. It's directed by Henry Joost and Ariel Schulman. They made Catfish, also went on to do Paranormal Activity 3 and 4. Now, Adam, you know I'm a big Paranormal Activity fan. I did like three. I don't think I ever made it to four. Can't speak to Mm -hmm. that one. Project Power, though, that's going to be on Netflix August 14. And then another choice here is The Personal History of David Copperfield. This comes from writer-director Armando Iannucci. It's an adaptation of the Dickens novel. And interesting cast, Dev Patel, Tilda Swinton, Ben Wishaw, and Hugh Laurie. That will be on VOD August 28. She Dies Tomorrow, previously mentioned, is in the poll, along with Sound of Metal. Riz Ahmed stars as a rock drummer who begins to lose his hearing. It was made by first-time feature director Darius Martyr. That is also an August 14th VOD release. And you know I love movies about music, Josh, especially drummers. Tesla, finally. Ethan Hawke, and of course you had me at Ethan Hawke, plays the famed 19th century scientist, played by David Bowie, in Christopher Nolan's The Prestige and Inventor in this unconventional biopic directed by Michael Almereda. He, of course, directed Hawk in the 2000 adaptation of Hamlet, also made 2015's Experimenter with Peter Sarsgaard and Winona Ryder. That's a VOD release on August 21st. And of course, there might be something we're missing. So you can vote other and write it in. We hope that you will vote in that poll. And if you leave a comment, let us know where you're listening from. That poll is over at Filmspotting. We did, of course, want to note the passing of Olivia de Havilland, Hollywood legend who died earlier this week at the age of 104. Mark Harris, as he tends to do when marking these occasions, probably said it best. He tweeted, with her loss, the last candle of 1930s Hollywood 
goes out. So de Havilland, two-time Oscar winner, 1947's To Each His Own and 1950's The Heiress. She was nominated for her performance as Melanie Hamilton in Gone with the Wind, collaborated eight times with Errol Flynn, including The Adventures of Robin Hood and Captain Blood. And Adam, I'm familiar with her from those two films, those Flynn films. Uh, She's quite good in both of them, have seen Gone with the Wind, but that is about it. So when this news broke over the weekend, I thought, what better excuse to go ahead and try to catch up with a de Havilland film, The Heiress, which most people I think pointed to as the one you should see that isn't available streaming right now. So I went to The Dark Mirror, which is a noir in some ways. Basically, I was I couldn't pass up this premise. De Havilland plays twin sisters who are accused of murder. And so there's definitely a pulpy vibe to this. De Havilland is absolutely the reason to see it. Her performance is just short of campy, a lot of fun, very layered, very clever. And I'll say this, avoid looking at the poster if you want to watch The Dark Mirror because Hmm. it pretty much gives away the movie, which had us, as we were watching it with the family, trying to figure out, like, are they guilty? Is one of them guilty? Are they innocent? I think the movie itself and de Havilland in her performance really plays that well and keeps you guessing. But yeah, the poster, not so much. So avoid that. Check out the film. And of course, some of her work with Errol Flynn or the other titles, if those are unfamiliar with you too. Yeah, I will definitely try to avoid the poster. I will try not to avoid some more of her work. I have not seen, as you know, one of my kind of infamous blind spots is Gone with the Wind. And it is one I don't necessarily plan to rectify anytime soon. I think those, without looking at her entire filmography, I think those two Flynn collaborations directed by Michael Curtiz, Robin Hood and Captain Blood, mm-hmm. are the only two films of hers that I've seen. Possible that I've seen something else, but those are the only two that jump out. And I know there was a little bit of discussion about this between you and Sam, I think, our producer in our film spotting Slack, so on-air production meeting Would we actually consider doing Olivia de Havilland as a marathon next, or are we definitely going to stick with our marathon of overlooked auteurs, specifically focusing on some of the great female directors of the past 50 or 60 years in cinema, or will we put de Havilland off for maybe after that? Yeah, you know, honestly, I'm fine either way. I'm excited about the overlooked auteurs. Doing de Havilland would be more timely in some ways. But our last marathon was Betty just Davis, right? Betty Davis, an iconic Hollywood actress. So we'd kind of be covering, obviously not the same ground, but the same type of marathon. So maybe it'd be better to to push okay. it off at least for one. But but really, both sound great to me. Okay, I like it. We will pencil that in. Massacre Theater, of course, is the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of last week's Massacre. <laughs> But we're supposed to return to the colony before sundown or dad's gonna... There are possibilities unexplored here. We gotta cook this. Now exactly how we cook this is the real question. Oh, yeah! So I was a little worried about my energy level when we were performing this, Adam, but I must have mustered enough because uh, I saw a few emails that that they were able to place this performance uh, thanks to that energy. So I'm happy about that. If you know what film we massacred, go ahead and email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, August 10th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the next show. That's what it's all about. Interrupting someone's life, making them see all the things that they took for granted. Like when they go back and buy all this stuff from the shelves of the insurance money, they'll have to think for the first time in a long time 
why they wanted all this stuff, what it's for. You take it away, you show them what they had. There it is, Nolan the magician, Nolan the philosopher, right at the beginning of his career. That clip from his debut film, 1999's Following. It is time for our Nolan Oeuvre Review Award. So we went back to the beginning. Now we're at the end, Josh, and we're going to share our favorite performances, our favorite moments, and the definitive individual rankings of Christopher Nolan's work. We do have a little bit of business to take care of the name for this award. So we always come up with some name that ties back to the marathon itself, the filmmaker or artist in question. We did get this from Ben Schultz in Denton, Texas, who said, I'm sure others have suggested this, but what about naming your Nolan Awards the Syncopies after his production studio? I always look forward to seeing that maze logo in front of each of his movies. A great idea from Ben. We referenced the Polaroids earlier, and I think we'll hear from the listener who suggested that in a bit. And finally, I teased this on an earlier show, Josh. Henrik Hansen, Maidstone Kent said, I've been enjoying the overview tremendously. Following and insomnia were new to me, and getting an overall feel for Nolan's work has given me something to look forward to in this awful year. I've been thinking about what you should call the awards when you wrap this up. A whopping 30% of his films have one-word titles beginning with the letters in. Is there a hidden meaning there? Should the awards be the innies? Or maybe, not sure about the spelling here, the Bois Awards (laughs) for the Inception soundtrack. As for the awards themselves, I hope you do best ensemble. Sorry, Henrik. Also, the most Michael Caine award, The Dark Knight Rises, is a shoe in here. Master Bruce, I will not bury another Batman. They are re-releasing Inception, oh, Interstellar, and Dunkirk. There, Adam. Oh, Come not on. even half, like like a tenth-hearted. <laughs> Henrik says they are re-releasing Inception, Interstellar, and Dunkirk at the cinemas here, which have just reopened. So tempting, but we are still cautious. We've been in lockdown so long, we are a little gun-shy about putting our heads over the parapet. Thanks for the show. Adam's David Bowie performance has made it into my shortlist for Best Massacre Theater Performance 2020, <laughs> but you will both have to get your skates on if you want to beat Michael Phillips in Rio Bravo, of course, yes, <laughs> memorably, as Walter Brennan at our live show, 15th anniversary at the Music Box. So, We have three candidates, and maybe one or two I overlooked from listeners. I apologize if I did. The Polaroids, we could go with the Syncopies, or we could go with the Bois Awards. And thinking about how important these soundtracks are to his films, we talked about it a lot in Zimmer's score, in particular with Dunkirk. That's where I'm leaning, Josh. How do you feel? The Bois. Exactly. I I like it because we can do that over and over and annoy people. It's fun to say. But we didn't spend much time on the Bois when we talked. This is a good point. And and now correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's mostly used in the trailer. That's where it became iconic, right? Is is it that instrumental in the film itself? And and we should know the answer to we that. We should but know. The, I do but not. <laughs> I remember at the end of Inception thinking, "Wow, I remember there was a lot more Bois in that." And I think it's mostly in the trailer. So that's a count against the Bois for me. Bois. Okay. So we haven't decided. We haven't decided. We're, we're split. I'm, just, I'm thinking this out here. All right. The syncopes, I looked this up as you were talking. Yeah. Syncope, apparently, and this is from a very trusted source called Wikipedia, Adam. It derives from, it's spelled differently, syncope with an E on the end, the medical term for fainting or loss of consciousness. Now, I don't know if that's what Nolan was going for. It kind of applies, obviously, to some of his films. So I do like that. I like the syncopes. That has it to its advantage. The Polaroids is just, it's kind of perfect, I think. I think I'm leaning towards the Polaroids. Just this idea of, of a snapshot. These are snapshots of his career that we're offering here uh, with our awards. Okay. So that's where I'd lean. But, you know, 
as you know, if you ask me tomorrow what we decided to name these, I will have forgotten. So I'm not I all that invested. <laughs> go ahead and make the call. No, I'm either tempted to make that call, go with what you said, or we could wait and we could let Sam break the tie here. The producer will decide Let's do what that. the title should be, as I like it should it. be. So Sam's going to make the call. I guess you'll see it officially when the show posts. So we are going to start with best supporting performance, and I will get into some of the candidates here and we'll get to our choices, but we thought we would hear from another listener, longtime listener, Josh Youngerman, who has... Maybe a little bit of a surprise pick. Josh, let's hear it. Hey, Adam and Josh. Don't fretting. This is Josh Youngerman calling in. I just thought uh, I would say my pick for best supporting actor. Uh, obviously, this is the Keith Ledger memorial list. Um, he's clearly the best supporting performance in the, in the filmography. So taking out uh, Ledger as the Joker, I'm stuck between uh, Tom Hardy as Bane in The Dark Knight Rises and Killian Murphy as the shivering soldier in Dunkirk. And I think I'm going with Killian Murphy for, uh, in Dunkirk for a few reasons. I think watching his uh, Nolan's oeuvre, I was struck at just how valuable of a presence Murphy is throughout his entire filmography. Um, his performance in, uh, as Scarecrow in, Batman, in the Batman trilogy is, is just a lot of fun to watch. And it's terrifying. And then... Um, I really love his work as Robert Fisher in Inception, but I think in Dunkirk as the shivering soldier, he only has about 10 or 15 minutes of screen time. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of dialogue, but I'm, I was just haunted. I'm haunted every time I watch the film by um, that character's performance and the way that character moves on screen, the, the physical performance he gives. And the confrontation with um, violence at the end, it's, it's just heartbreaking. Anyways, looking forward to hearing your picks, um, and hopefully Christopher Nolan uh, solves the coronavirus soon. Thank you, Josh, for that. He helps us there by taking care of a little bit of housekeeping. Not only does he have maybe an off-the-beaten-path choice for best supporting performance, going with Killian Murphy specifically for Dunkirk. And until I saw him in Dunkirk, I had forgotten that he was one of the handful of actors here we'll get to who appears in multiple films from the overview in a supporting turn. But he also says... This pretty much has to be the Heath Ledger Memorial Awards, doesn't it? And I do think to make it interesting at all, we probably have to set Ledger aside and go with someone else. Are you in agreement with that, Josh? Yeah, that works for me. I mean, it also relieves us of the debate of is he a supporting actor in The Dark Knight? Yeah. Is he a lead? We'll just we'll just mark it as the best performance uh, in Christopher Nolan's films. Okay, so we're in agreement, and I'm going to give you some more of the candidates for best supporting performance from our Christopher Nolan Oeuvre review, along with Killian Murphy, who appears in both Dunkirk and multiple Dark Knight trilogy films. Does he appear in all three? I can't remember if he shows up in The Dark Knight, Josh, do you? Oh, yes, because he's there at the very beginning with the parking garage van and the dogs fight, right? Yes. He's there, yeah. Yeah, I think your memory is correct. So four Nolan films. We also have Michael Caine appearing in more than four films. Michael Caine, there. That's what I gave <laughs> little, you. Little it's better. the only... It's the only one I can do that, of course, sounds even, you know, somewhere in the universe of Michael Caine. The Dark Knight trilogy, The Prestige, Inception, and Interstellar. Did I leave anything out there, Josh? Sounds right. Okay. Anne Hathaway. She appears in both The Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar. Joseph Gordon-Levitt does appear in both The Dark Knight Rises and Inception. Also from The Dark Knight trilogy, Morgan Freeman and Gary Oldman 
and all three films. A couple other standouts. We'll see if you go off the grid. You sometimes like to surprise Josh Robin Williams from Insomnia, Carrie Ann Moss or Joe Pantoliano from Memento. I know how much you love Marion Cotillard and Maul in Inception. Mm -hmm. So is that where you went? Well, first off, Josh is right about Killian Murphy and really being the MVP, I think, for his his Scarecrow, his Robert Fisher, which I think is crucial to the emotional layers of Inception and, of course, the work in Dunkirk. So I did give him a lot of consideration, even though he's a little off the beaten path. And how about the entire supporting cast of Inception from Codiard to Ken Watanabe. I mean, they're all they're all great. If you could just package them together, they would win this award. But I am going somewhere different. And it is Carrie Ann Moss as Natalie in Memento. We talked about, Adam, what might be the best performed moment in all of Nolan's films, where Natalie is sitting in her car waiting for Leonard's memory to reset. And then she changes her face, gets into character, and comes out to trick him. Mm. You know, it's it's kind of irresistible. It's one of these performances where the character has to give a performance. And I think that movie fans, cinephiles are kind of suckers for those sorts of turns. And Moss is just fantastic doing that in Memento. So that's my pick. You sad, sad freak. I can say whatever the f- I want. And you won't remember. We'll still be best friends. Or maybe even lovers. I'll see you soon. Stay focused. Find a pen. I'm gonna write this down. I'm gonna write it down. Concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. Yeah, that scene is one that really amazes on rewatch, and I'm with you on her performance. So before I knew that we had decided to go with this as the Heath Ledger Memorial Awards, I was thinking about it in these terms. Which performance is most crucial to the success of the film? I know it's kind of a cliche when people say, like, I can't envision anyone else in that role. But honestly, if you really think about not imagining that movie without that performance... I think it's got to be Heath Ledger, right? I just don't know how you play that bizarre and mannered a character without it feeling bizarre and mannered. And as we touched on in our review a little bit, but more maybe in our Dark Knight Sacred Cow from a few years ago, it just never it never feels overperformed. But Ledger, of course, memorialized with the Oscar. We're going to memorialize him here. And I'm going to say that Anne Hathaway is absolutely getting my award because, Josh, I think the same does apply to her. And The Dark Knight Rises. And I know I like that film a lot more than you and maybe a lot more than a lot of listeners, but I think it's such a dynamic performance as Selena Kyle slash Catwoman. She's funny. She's fun. She's seductive. She's smart. She delivers in all the action scenes. She hits really subtle emotional beats that make her a full rich character, not just a supporting player. And I'm so glad as well, maybe a little bit of a cheat, Josh, but as some of these people appear in multiple films... I'm really glad she's part of the journey in Interstellar, too, where I think she again nails all those emotional beats that she has while also pulling off probably being the smartest crew member in any room or on any planet. So I just think Anne Hathaway is incredible, and I would be very happy if she continued to work with Christopher Nolan. Yeah, my issues with The Dark Knight Rises really didn't have much to do with her. I think she's a lot of fun in that movie, so I'm with you there. Once you've done what you had to, they'll never let you do what you want to. Start fresh. 
There's no fresh start in today's world. Any 12-year-old with a cell phone could find out what you did. Everything we do is collated and quantified. Everything sticks. Is that how you justify stealing? I take what I need from those who have more than enough. I don't stand on the shoulders of people with less. Robin Hood? I think I do more to help someone than most of the people in this room. Than you. I think maybe you're assuming a little too much. Maybe you're being unrealistic about what's really in your pants other than your wallet. Ouch. You think all this can last? There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. You and your friends better batten down the hatches, because when it hits, you're all going to wonder how you ever thought you could live so large and leave so little for the rest of us. Best lead performance from our Nolan Oeuvre review. We can kind of go in order here. I forget if I'm saying this correctly, Josh, Jeremy Tybalt or Jeremy Theobald from uh, the following? I don't remember myself. Let's go with the okay. second. Well, how about neither of us pick him so we don't have to say it again? There you go. Okay. Guy Pierce from Memento, Hugh Jackman from The Prestige, Christian Bale from The Prestige and The Dark Knight Trilogy. We have Leonardo DiCaprio from Inception or Matthew McConaughey in Interstellar. Josh, who is it? So for me, there's a clear winner here, and it is Guy Pierce as Leonard in Memento. I'm giving both the acting awards to Memento. I think that's one of the things that? that really jumped out at me on this rewatch is how solid those performances are underneath all the amazing mechanics. But yeah, as far as Leonard, you know, the levels of deception and self-deception at play are just so impressive how he balances those. The instinctive speed of this performance, you know, he's capturing a guy whose mind is spinning at every moment and Pierce just makes us feel the activity and the energy. It's a very physical performance even though all of that is taking place in his head mm -hmm. we really feel it kind of in in just how he even carries himself honestly i don't think any other lead performance in any of his films comes close so i'm really curious to to hear where you went hmm. well i definitely considered pierce for me it came down to three choices here because they're the three clear best performances among the candidates i listed and it is pierce or it's christian bale in the prestige but you heard me on our last show talking about Interstellar oh, and Matthew no. McConaughey. Oh, no. no, he is he is absolutely the guy. He is getting my best lead performance, whatever we're calling these awards. And here's the thing, Josh. You could take out that single take close-up, the video message scene, and my answer would still be the same. Lift that out of the movie. It has yeah. nothing to do with that kind of show-stopping moment, even though I think he's incredible in it. It's, for me, that combination of explorer and engineer swashbuckler and kind of scientist if you will and here's also what mcconaughey can do he can say to a teacher who thinks his daughter should be reprimanded for her behavior at school all right yeah you know what there's a game tomorrow night she's going through a bit of a baseball phase her favorite team's playing there's going to be candy and soda i think i'll take her to that and make it just deliciously polite but defiant fu and he also has the sense of humor and the natural kind of self-deprecation that when he looks out the window near the end and pridefully grins and says cooper station nice of you to name it after me and of course they point out that it was named after his daughter it's really funny but also really touching at the same time when they tell him that it is in fact named after murph instead yeah so that's that's the moment 
that I do think makes this performance work because it struck me upon watching Interstellar and thinking about McConaughey, who I like in this film and I think is good in the show stopping scene and probably even better earlier with his daughter. But I do think he needs a little bit of self deflation. McConaughey, I'm saying, as a performer in his roles, for him to really work for me when he's playing just straight swashbuckler. And you've seen him in some of some of these movies doing this where there's there's not that sort of like deflating of the persona. I don't think he works at all. You know, <laughs> there's no deflation. There's no deflation. It's no. But I just, what I'm yeah. saying, what I'm saying here is an in interstellar. That line you just talked about, the Cooper moment is a moment yeah. of, of deflation. Right. Okay. So, so okay. he's kind of the, the all right, all right. That, you know, he's, is he too serious otherwise in this film? Is that what you're saying? I don't know that McConaughey can be a hundred percent serious, and it will work for me. Hmm. I think he's got to somehow recognize that he's a little bit of the rooster in whatever movie he's in. And and the rooster is fun if he knows he's a rooster. If he doesn't, it can get a little silly. And I don't think, well, I think there are enough moments in Interstellar where, where he recognizes the rooster so that it does work for me. Well, the rooster is a good way to look at it, especially when you think about his voice a little bit. It gets to that kind of swashbuckling attitude that we're talking about. And I guess... For me, that's what's so amazing about this role, that we we still get the rooster come through, but all those other kind of serious scientific things he has to do, I believe him. Yeah. I believe him completely. He's good. I think he's amazing, so it's definitely my pick for best lead performance. Cooper, there's no point in using her fuel to chase- Analyze the endurance of spin. Cooper, what are you doing? Docking. Endurance rotation is 67, 68 RPM. Okay, get ready to match our spin with the retro thrusters. It's not possible. No, it's necessary. So we have two categories here now that are that are similar, and it's always hard in these marathons to kind of distinguish, well, maybe my favorite moment is the best Betty Davis moment, or it's the best Christopher Nolan moment, or whatever the, the kind of marathon or retrospective topic is. And I definitely vacillated a little bit, but I'm going to give you some candidates. We'll see if I... I identified one here that you ended up landing on, Josh. With Nolan, you can definitely look, whether it's moments that feel uniquely Nolan-esque or they are just great moments in his films, I look to action scenes like the fog chase in Insomnia, the plane crash in The Dark Knight Rises at the beginning, the Dark Knight's bank heist at the beginning and the truck chase, Inception's hallway fight, of course, the dogfight we get in Dunkirk. There are, of course, many great scenes of end revelations. Memento, I have to believe that my actions still have meaning. Prestige, learning the true magician's sacrifice, the top in Inception. There may be some outliers in terms of emotion when you think about just pure emotional intensity, the messages from home that we've already touched on in Interstellar, and then humor. We don't much associate Christopher Nolan and jokes, but that oh, wait, I'm chasing this guy moment in Memento yeah. is also really funny, right? And then, of course, there's just kind of the sublime imagery. And honestly, it's not just the running out of fuel gliding in Dunkirk. It's maybe, as we said during the review, that entire film. But you could look at Paris and the street folding in Inception, the field of bulbs in the prestige, Joker's head out the window mm. in the car in the dark night. And I think, too, I think you touched on this moment in particular And there's a similar callback, I think, to it almost in Dunkirk with one of the boats in the water, the the vessel on the ocean planet 
in Interstellar yeah. and the the use of scale there. So those were a bunch of different candidates I came up with. We're going to start with the best Nolan moment. What's a moment from this marathon that most speaks to you as being uniquely him? So as opposed to scene, right now we're just, yeah, talking about the or uniquely it could be a scene, but sure. Nolan yeah. moment. Okay. Well, That's it. I, yeah, yeah I, I did go with the spinning top at the end of Inception because more for what it represents and symbolizes than the moment itself, though I do think it's perfect for the film. And I'm not going to belabor that. We argued a little bit about it when we revisited Inception. So I will set that aside, though I did consider it. That's why I made it partly my pick is because it's perfect for this movie, but it's also representative for me of how Nolan just holds the audience in his hands and he manages to balance philosophy and entertainment in the same moment as this does the audacity of thrilling us while still challenging us and not spoon feeding anything, not including a tidy, happy ending at all, but just giving us this moment that's going to take our breath away. And here I just love that it's an entirely visual one. Mm -hmm. I, I think others have made, you know, the Nolan Hitchcock comparison before. And I think it's for this reason, this, abu this ability to manipulate in good ways, the audience. So for me, that's exactly what he's doing when he's spinning that top. Um, if he were to, uh, you know, retroactively fit a logo for his production company, I think it should be the, the spinning top because I think it just does perfectly summarize what his movies do so well. Even though that moment from Inception doesn't resonate with me the way it does with you, I absolutely understand that choice. I ended up landing on something that I know has probably been talked about, at least in terms of one of these two movies I'm going to mention, and this particular shot, Josh. I know that there are fans of this moment in, well, I'll say it, in The Dark Knight, but it was watching Dunkirk and a parallel I made that really hit me as, you know what, even if this isn't something that is a signature Nolan shot, maybe we can't find an example of it in all of his films. The fact that I respond as strongly to it as I do in both of these instances, I'm calling it the existential stance, or maybe this will take hold, Josh. Maybe maybe I can dream. People who write about Nolan's work will someday cite this. I'm calling it Nolan's Man of Nerve. So I'm thinking of The Dark Knight, and I'm thinking of Dunkirk, and it's that shot when we first see the Joker in The Dark Knight coming up slowly, tracking towards him from yeah. behind, right? Standing still. We see him pretty much in long shot, just kind of cut off at his shoes. He's tilting his head down a little bit, and he just in that moment looks, well, we just imagined him to be so menacing, and it, there's something so eerie about that, seeing him from behind with that stillness. And he uses it again in Dunkirk. He uses it again in Dunkirk when we see Tom Hardy finally land that plane and then stand in front of it as he watches it go up in flames. That's the first time we see that really beautiful shot of the plane on fire as nightfall is coming. And it's the same exact shot scale. The camera is moving more subtly, but it's behind Tom Hardy, cutting him off at the same place about the shoes. And Hardy is just standing there perfectly still, even with his head arched down a little bit. And for me, I use that phrase, Nolan's man of nerve, because that gets at one of the key themes for Christopher Nolan and his work. Certainly one that has stood out to me throughout this overview, which is that Nikola Tesla line. The David Bowie has where he says, you're familiar with the phrase man's reach exceeds his grasp. It's a lie. Man's grasp exceeds his nerve. Think about how many protagonists in Christopher Nolan movies that applies to this idea of unbelievable ambition 
trying to pull something off that seems impossible and unattainable and the sacrifice that it requires to do that. Now, I think that applies even to Heath Ledger's Joker. We may not see that sacrifice in the same way we view the nobility of the characters in Dunkirk, obviously, and he's he's a villain. I get all that. But think about the audacity of what he pulls off and is trying to pull off in completely crumbling the foundation of every person in Gotham and every institution in Gotham. And he comes really close to pulling it off. And I think it applies to Tom Hardy's farrier, too, in being willing to make that choice to keep going, to not turn back, to be the savior for so many of those soldiers by following through on his mission and taking out that German plane and then paying the price for it, watching his plane destroyed and getting captured. He decided that was worth it. He had to step up and actually be the man whose whose nerve matched his grasp. And that's what we see. And I think that stance, for me, that stance somehow gets at that idea. It, it allows us to take in the man against the environment and consider what it is they just achieved or what it is they're about to achieve. Well, they both have a moment where they stand in front of something massive they've set on fire, right? With Joker lighting up that pile of cash. It's interesting you make that connection because, yeah, you, you could say that one is one's a hero, one's a villain. But in that moment boy, does Hardy look like Bane, doesn't he? When he's, cause oh, he's got, he's got the mask still on and he's got the military style jacket or the, the air pilot jacket on. And so it always reminds me of Bane too. Yeah. So if you go over to filmspotting.net, just in case you're doubting me about the symmetry between those two shots, go to filmspotting.net, click on lists. We will put it on that page and I will put the screen grab so you can compare those two moments, what I'm calling Nolan's man of nerve. That then leads us to our overall favorite moment or scene from this oeuvre review. Where are you going, Josh? So this was hard because, as you were saying earlier, you know, sometimes it's difficult to delineate between a defining moment and a scene. Well, for me, this was difficult because so many of Nolan's bravura scenes are actually these extended parallel cut sequences. So they can go on for like 15 minutes or more, these chunks of his movies that I think of as, think of like the Inception multi-dream sequence near the climax. And really, honestly, Dunkirk could be, the entire movie could be his best scene, right? Because it functions in this way. So I decided, I ended up where you ended up, Adam, in a bit of an unusual place in terms of film for something so defining. But I think it's because I could pull out this concise, compact chunk from The Dark Knight, and it's Batman and Joker's standoff in the streets. It sort of begins just when Batman flips over the semi-truck. The reason I went this way is it's maybe his best practical stunt that Nolan pulls off, something that we have praised practical stunts throughout this Uber review. I love the switch in camera angles that he gives on the truck's flip. First, we see it from the side as it begins, and then we cut so that we're seeing it from the front, looking down the street, and it just creates this beautiful, these three vertical lines, right? The buildings on one side, the truck flipping over this vertical line in the middle, and then the buildings on the other side. Uh, It's just gorgeous. And also, So it's not just a stunt. There are so many character touches here between Joker and Batman. Mm -hmm. When when Ledger comes, yeah, he well first he comes stumbling out of the truck and and kind of accidentally fires the gun. It could have easily like shot himself in the leg. Just that Joker chaos (laughs) right there. But then you do get the standoff, right? The suicidal standoff 
between these two, which represents the defining nature of both of their characters, the choice that each of them are willing to make in that moment. That is what distinguishes them. We talked about how 1989's Batman is so much about how Batman and Joker are flip sides of the same coin. Here we get the moment of what that coin's edge is brilliantly staged. I think before that moment in The Dark Knight, Adam, I I didn't think superhero movies could be this good. And it just completely elevated the genre for me. So that's my pick. It's a great choice. I promised earlier that we would hear from the listener who suggested the Polaroids as potentially the inevitable title of these awards. Jeff Post, he's in Inglewood, California, and he perfectly sets up my choice for my favorite moment or scene from the OOV review. Hi, Adam. Uh, Josh, Sam. It's Jeff Post from Englewood, Colorado, calling in with my suggestion for what you should call the awards for the Nolan Oeuvre Review. Uh, The Polaroids that Leonard takes in Memento are tangible things as opposed to bois, and that's what I'd call them. I'd say the, the Polaroid for best performance goes to whoever. Nolan will often open his films with a shot that gives clues and kind of encapsulates everything that's about to follow. In Memento, Lenny's holding that Polaroid of the murder he's just committed, and he's periodically shaking it. We used to do that because I was allegedly supposed to make them develop faster, but time's running backwards in Memento, and so it's like he's trying to keep the image from fading into oblivion. And that's, of course, what's happening to his memory, and it's all just a really nice visual distillation of my favorite film of his. It's dark, it's sinister, and it's you know it's just on the verge of disappearing forever. So I, I don't know if you needed that little sidetrack there, but I wanted to say it. So there you go. Uh, I will say I think that Nolan would approve of my idea because Polaroids are shot on real film, guys. Uh, thanks. Love the show. Thank you, Jeff, for that. Very well argued. A great suggestion. And he's talking specifically about the moment at the beginning of Memento where we see Lenny with the Polaroid. But for me, the best moment or scene that definitely could have been my favorite Nolan moment from the overview is when he's holding the Polaroid at the end of the movie, when the black and white turns to color in Memento. This is that moment where it just feels like the quintessential Nolan moment to me in the film that is either, we'll hear in a moment, my favorite film of his or my second favorite film, and definitely one of the films that I've said before influenced my worldview and actually kind of my, I suppose, understanding of human nature. It is this movie, and so we get the two timelines intersecting there. Right. That's the moment where the two timelines, the black and white stuff and the color stuff, some scenes that are broken up and interspersed that are going in chronological order, the black and white with the color scenes that are going in reverse chronological order. And here it finally coalesces. The timelines do intersect and it's expressed completely visually, which seems so appropriate to Nolan. It's a silent moment. It's a visual moment. It's ostentatious because how could it not be when you're watching an image go from black and white to color in front of you? But it is somehow subtle. You can almost miss it the first time you watch it because it does happen while Leonard is looking at the Polaroid. Everything gets a little darker around him. We see the color come in, but it's really gradual fade. And as that image comes into view, so do we finally get clarity on Leonard's true character. That's when that comes into view. And we understand the depth of his depravity and his denial, which again, I think is a quintessential psychological part of so many quintessential Nolan characters. So it's the the thematic element to that moment, but it's also the fact that it deals with time. It's 
it's a moment in front of us where linear and nonlinear collide. And as I said, it is a clear visual, bold visual choice that Nolan makes as well. It just seemed perfect to me. Yeah, it's just, it's so audacious. And when we get to our rankings, uh, I'll I'll probably have more to say about Memento. Okay, well, let's go to those rankings. It is time for best picture from the Christopher Nolan Oeuvre review, and we decided that we would announce the winner by finishing our rankings. We kind of started out doing rankings after every review. We'd say, okay, well, we watched that one, and now this one slots ahead of it or below. Maybe we got about three films in. Realized that would be a little clumsy. Let's build up some suspense. Let's do it at the very end. Before we do that, we're going to build up more suspense. We're going to share with you our recent poll results. We asked listeners to name Christopher Nolan's best film. So this if you will, is our listeners' rankings of Christopher Nolan's best work. Josh, go ahead and share the results. So two titles received less than 1% of the vote, and those would be following, not a surprise, you and I had not seen it until this review, Adam, and then Insomnia as well. Uh, The Dark Knight Rises, 1% of the vote. Batman Begins, 2% of the vote. And then a jump here to Interstellar, which had a few more fans, including you, Adam, 12% of the vote for that film. Very close, though, to Dunkirk, which received 13%. And then we have Inception, which received 15% of the vote. Here are the top three. The Dark Knight with 16%, The Prestige with 17%, and then Memento did win this poll 23% of the vote. So lots of titles there, pretty closely bunched together. Obviously, a tough choice here for listeners. Jeremy Kennis said, man, it's hard to go against Inception or The Dark Knight, The Prestige or Dunkirk, or even Insomnia for that matter, but it has to be a memento for me. Not many films have blown my mind the way this film did and continues to. Here's Eric Hyman. I'd argue it's been a long downward slide since Memento, Nolan's best film. I'd love to see Nolan stripped of the outsized budgets and see if he might reconnect with the taut storytelling, character depth, and actual emotion of his breakout. I won't deny that some of the spectacle he's created in films like Inception and Dunkirk is initially impressive, but rarely does it resonate beyond the moment. Outside of Memento, only Heath Ledger's performance in The Dark Knight manages to break free of his overly engineered, overly complicated labyrinths. So can I say on behalf of both of us, Eric, we hear what you're saying, but you're completely wrong. And I, I can say we hear what you're saying because I can completely disagree with him on virtually everything he said, but agree with him on one thought, which is as much as I love the spectacle and the big budget stuff, I'd have no issue with him going back to make a taut, yeah. leaner movie like Memento. Yeah, I, maybe maybe that's Tenet. I don't know. Um, but yeah, something like None that would know. be really exciting. John Dembski, I voted Interstellar. Thank you, John. It's the riskiest film he's made since Memento. Nolan often hides behind his puzzle box constructions, but in Interstellar, there are real breakthroughs. His characters express hurt, disappointment, grief, and hope. And I hope he infuses more of his future films with these ingredients, even if it means fewer plot twists and explosions. Shout out to Jessica Chastain, who is the key to the movie's success. Here's a note from Logan Brick. Most of Nolan's work is about emotionally stunted or otherwise damaged men who make great personal sacrifices for the sake of their duty in the world, whatever it may be. This idea might be interesting throughout even his most fantastical films, but in The Prestige, it comes down to reality. In The Prestige, it's personal because Nolan has endured the sacrifices of an artist. And I got to say, Adam, you know, we'll talk again about where Prestige ranks now for me, but 
I was encouraged to see it this high up in the poll with listeners votes in second place, you know, with 17%, because I felt up to this point, that was one that's not talked about quite as much in his career as some of the other titles. So that was encouraging. Encouraging for me too, as you'll see in a moment when I get to my ranking, but I feel differently, actually. I've always felt like The Prestige is one of those movies that is always in people's top three or the movie that they say is truly their favorite Nolan film. So didn't surprise me quite as much. Let's see if you'll surprise me, Josh, with your ranking. You get the honors first. Start at the bottom. All 10 films. Bring us to your number one. All right, let me run through these quickly here. In last place is The Dark Knight Rises. Then I've got Insomnia, Following, Interstellar, Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Memento, Inception, and Dunkirk. So as far as what has shifted for me, The Dark Knight Rises fell a little bit. I know you love it, Adam. Probably the least rewarding revisit, even if there are still things that I do admire about it. Interstellar, I know it didn't jump up high enough for you, Adam, but it did move up two slots to where it is at now. Definitely underrated nope. some things about it, but I still think it's it's one of those, the grasp, the grasp there for Nolan, um, you know, just was a little further than, I don't hmm. know if further than his nerve, but then what we okay. actually got. The Prestige, again, just praised it. I do think it's really good, but it fell a little bit for me. There were some character issues, especially with those supporting characters. The dead wife trope was least successful, I think, for me with The Prestige. So that fell a little bit. Here's the one that jumped up. And the real significant shift, I think, for me, Memento going to third place, which puts it on that tier really with Inception and with The Dark Knight for me as just you know an incredibly accomplished, brazen film for for a second film from uh, a movie maker and the performances resonated with me much more this time honestly it just been a long time since since i'd seen memento and i had taken for granted slash forgotten how impressive it is so did move that one up a couple of slots and dunkirk yeah i mean we'll get to it maybe when we talk a little bit more about our best picture choices but it did stay in that top slot for me hmm. okay here's my ranking following Batman Begins, Insomnia, Inception, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, Dunkirk, I can see you shaking your head, The Prestige, Memento, and Interstellar, baby. Number so one. So now I was thinking that, you know, we've closed the book on Nolan, yeah. said all there is to say, Adam, you have just opened things up. We've got to do this all over again. You, we, really? We're we going to go gotta, back now? We gotta get, Let's start we with the most recent mind. and go back. Exactly. Till you find your I mean, right headspace. <laughs> isn't it funny? We really haven't disagreed about these movies much throughout the overview. The biggest split we had was on Inception, where it it was lowered in my estimation, and you just really love it. Lowered right? a but it's lot. Not like, yeah, it, it, well, yeah, but it's not like I hate Inception by any stretch of the imagination. I still give it, ultimately, a positive rating, but... Man, talk about differences in taste. Our lists are pretty radically different. Yeah. And, you know, the difference is what we respond to in a film, I think. But that might be a good question. Is like, are there any of these you would say you actively disliked? Because maybe for me... I could say that of The Dark Knight Rises, but even then, it's it's kind of a mixed response. I'm looking here what I actually rated it 
not that star ratings mean anything. I tell people that all the time, but it is helpful maybe a little bit engaging it. And I think my last viewing, I, I gave it two and a half out of five on Letterboxd. So that would be mixed. So yeah, I think that's kind of like yeah. a baseline for our conversation is we're huge fans of this filmmaker. But as you're saying, we respond to very different things in his movies. Yeah, very different things. And it is true. I'm a fan of all 10 of the films. If you go by just a very basic baseline, looking at those star ratings, all of them have at least three stars out of five for me on Letterboxd, which means it gets the like. So I like all of these movies. In terms of shifting around a little bit, reappraising Insomnia did bump it up ahead of Batman Begins on my list. So I have more respect for that film, but it didn't go too high. What's really weird, Josh, is if you look at my seventh and sixth spots, I've got Inception and the Dark Knight. So two of his movies that are most beloved, including by you, fell the furthest on my list. And Inception, that is based on my reaction to the movie this time. The Dark Knight falling to where it did down to sixth when before I think I maybe had it in the third slot, definitely no lower than four. It tumbling, if you will, down to six has nothing to do with me feeling really any differently about The Dark Knight. It's just having such a strong reaction to some other films this time around. And that would include The Dark Knight Rises. It would include Dunkirk, which actually went up from number five to four on my list. The Prestige was always in my top five, but now it's a really tough debate for me between it being the number two best Nolan film or the number three. I could easily change my mind on that. And Interstellar jumping up a slot even ahead of Memento. So yeah, two films took a tumble, but it really isn't reflective of, at least in one of those cases, that movie not being a very good film or a movie that I have a ton of admiration for. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And I think that's a good way to couch it too, is is it's gaining enthusiasm for certain titles over finding flaws in things that you didn't see before. Exactly. Probably that was overall my experience as well. Well, does that do it? Does that conclude our inaugural overview? You know, I think so. I was just, the only other thing I want to say about Dunkirk, just in its, in its favor, is that I do think Here's what I like. It seems to strip away all of his tricks and just give us a war picture, right? On the surface, you could almost sit through it and think that's what you got, which is his greatest sleight of hand for me. Just the fact that it's not as showy as Memento or Inception or Interstellar when it plays with time, but still ultimately more impressive in what it achieves by playing with time. It's more affecting. I think, um, yeah, like I said, if you can be emotionally moved by actual craft, that's what happens to me with with Dunkirk. And to have it happen a third time, you know, that doesn't wear off for me. So I couldn't, as much as Memento did jump up for me in my appreciation, mm-hmm. it couldn't quite get there to knock Dunkirk off. So so that's yeah. that's where I'm at. I get it. And we did just talk about Interstellar as our last Nolan conversation, so I don't want to repeat too much of that. But what you just said... In terms of being moved, that's the movie that moves me the most emotionally, but also wows me as much or almost as much as any of the other films we talked about in terms of craft. It's that marriage that for me makes Interstellar so special. And you know what? Maybe part of it, I mean, honestly, I don't need to provide excuses for Interstellar. I clearly think it's a great film or I wouldn't have put it at number one. But watching it with my daughter and it's such a a father-daughter movie, obviously, and embarking on this whole overview she's been along for the ride the whole way and it's just going to be a special movie one movie we saw together already when she saw it for the first time in 70 millimeter at the music box as i mentioned so i guess i have a little bit of history 
with it, but I genuinely think it's a great film, and that's why it's my number one Christopher Nolan movie, and thus does conclude our Nolan overview. We will provide links to all of our previous discussions and these awards over at filmspotting.net. I promise you will be able to find our overview page right on the main page of filmspotting.net, including all of our picks for these awards. If you want to continue the Nolan conversation with us, you can do that on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And over in the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. The current Film Spotting poll might just help us plan some of our programming. We're asking which August 2020 release are you most interested in seeing? A bunch of good options there for you. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out this weekend at drive-ins, She Dies Tomorrow from Amy Simitz. A woman thinks she's dying and it's contagious. That is also available digitally on August 7th. In a couple weeks, Film Spotting will be back and we'll get to at least one or two reviews. And we think She Dies Tomorrow will be on the list. So look forward to that. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit. Comes from the album Reunions. More information is at JasonIsbell.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.